0: first next show of 2021. I hope you had a great start into the roaring 20s and wish you a happy and most of all healthy new year. To me, the first few days of the new year felt a bit like a roller coaster. After the celebration of a new vaccine being distributed and a cheerful goodbye to the year 2020, we again heard many tough news headlines, COVID cases, numbers and death tolls skyrocketing the UK suffering from an even more infectious virus, the US Parliament being run over by a mob, plus the realisation that almost a year into digital schooling, the platforms are still not sufficient for a simple conference call. But today, for me and for all of us here, is a day of joy and celebration. It is not only the day Donald Trump left the White House, hopefully for good, it is also the day the world welcomes the first Madam Vice President. What will this change mean for us, for our global interconnectedness and economic relationships for female leaders and also for the primarily U.S. American platforms we use here in Europe, where Monique, David and I are based? I'm not the one to predict that, but my gut feeling at least says today marks a new beginning, and that's good. So I'm happy to celebrate this day with you and the audience of our monthly next show and with my fellow host Monique. Hello to Amsterdam and David.
1: Hello to London. Hello there. So what gives you hope Monique? (sighs) Well it's it's a strange day here you know our government fell over a you know, racist policies—they never solved. And we just heard today we're going to have a curfew and only one visitor per day for any family. I mean, it's—it's it's all horrible. So uh, vaccines give me hope, and and not just vaccines. I think also the fact that in a year all these scientists have been working so hard, and that scientists suddenly are our new heroes. I mean, I, I like that. I really like that. So yeah, there's hope. There's hope. Yeah, I can totally understand that.
0: I, I really have hope that people can actually solve these huge high-scale problems. That kind of gives me hope for other problems we will be facing in the next, well, few years, I guess. So, David, what, what gives you hope?
2: Yeah, I mean, 2021 has started out in a crazy place. There's no doubt about that. And London is, uh, the whole of the UK is on total lockdown. So we, we feel it. Looking out to 20. 20- 2021, what gives me hope is strangely enough, I mean, the, the, the terrible scenes we saw at the Capitol building last week, a couple of weeks ago in Washington, um, and then the, the social media response that was, was, was kind of more sweeping than anything we've seen from them before. So they de-platformed Trump, you know, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, they, they got rid of Trump, essentially. And in so doing, You know, it's clear that they have acceded to or acknowledged a broader social responsibility uh, in a new way. And that they've they've acknowledged that these claims to be platforms and not at all publishers are, you know, at the very least, problematic. They're they're complex. And that gives me hope that 2021 will be the year we really address these questions. We bring some form of co- the collective to bear on these hugely powerful platforms, um, and we just build a better internet. And I think 2021 can be the year we really start to do that. And that gives me hope. You know, we don't have answers; these are complex questions. But like we just said, you know, coronavirus was a complex scientific question. We we cracked it in a year. So I I don't believe this idea that we can't figure out regulation that that will deliver us a better internet. And 2021 is the year to do
1: it.
0: Yeah, I hope okay. so too. <laughs>
1: so <laughs> please, let know know what We'll talk about it.
0: What your hopes are here in the chat and uh, what you wish for in 2021. And I will join you in the chat now and we'll leave this stage to Monique David and our first guest of the year, Albert Benger, who is calling in from New York. So see you in a bit and enjoy shifting your perspective with Albert.
1: Yes, Albert Wenger. It's my uh, privilege to introduce him. You see him there in the middle. Albert Wenger is a managing partner at Union Square Ventures, a thesis-driven VC firm. Now, a thesis-driven VC firm? We'll talk about that. But... Basically, they have an evolving set of core ideas that guide their investing. And basically, their ideas guide the world. Uh, Investments include famous companies like Twitter, Etsy, Tumblr, Foursquare, Behance, and Kickstarter. And before joining USV, Albert was the president of Delicious. And an angel investor involved with Etsy and Tumblr, uh, founded all kinds of companies. Um, Interestingly enough, he's German by birth. And Wenger won the German high school computer science competition when he was 18. His mother was very proud of him, and his mother is watching today as well. Hi, Marwanger. Good to have you here. Anyway, he graduated from Harvard College of Economics and Computer Science, earned his PhD in Information Technology from the MIT. In other words, he has a very, very deep understanding of tech, and he's been building companies based on some ideas about what, you know, what is changing the world. So, Albert, welcome. It's great to be here. So, yes. <laughs> How are you doing over there in New York?
3: Well, it is an exciting day. Um, it is uh, the end of a very rough presidency for the United States and hopefully the beginning of a better one.
1: Yes, I think nobody would disagree with that one. Oh, well, 70 million people actually disagree with that one in the United States, which is so scary. Anyway, let's start with our conversation. I wanted to start off with this idea that you, you develop these thesis every few years, um, to discern a pattern or a force that is moving history along. You know, this is a pretty grand idea. And, and just to recap, in your early days, you focused on application layers of the web or all kinds of companies doing with that. Then your thesis number two, large networks of engaged users differentiated to user experience and defensible to network effects. That's basically the world we live in now, right? You, you've propelled that world with your investments. And then... Thesis number three, trusted brands that broaden access to knowledge, capital, and well-being by leveraging again, networks, platforms, and protocols. Already a change in perspective. And the last thing you are now doing is a climate fund. Now, let's go back. How do you develop your thesis? How does that work?
3: Well, the uh, firm is a partnership. And um, we spend, as partners, a lot of our time talking about What we're seeing in the world, uh, and uh, also what we want to see in the world, and how we can bring those two things together. And through this conversation, usually some ideas emerge through the conversation and the interaction with the startup world. Uh, And then what we try to do is crystallize these ideas both into sort of high level theses, like the thesis 3.0, which you just stated, which is about access to knowledge, capital, and well being. Um, or the climate thesis, but then we also try to break that down into much more concrete ideas. So for example, uh, knowledge access uh, for us means we've invested heavily in what we call direct-to-learner companies. So these are companies that bypass the existing educational institutions, companies like Duolingo and Quizlet and Skillshare and Codecademy and so forth, and go directly to the learner. And we believe um, that that's one of the ways the internet can broaden access so that you can be anywhere in the world ideally and learn anything
1: yeah and, and is there i mean it seems like over the years the goals have become a lot loftier i you know you try to make it a better world is there any specific development that you with your investments try to push which didn't work which where you did not succeed in bringing this about? Because these waves you've described, there are really big waves. You've been you know, on those waves. But what is there that you tried that did not work as you thought it would? Well, I,
3: I, often going into an investment, you don't really know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I remember very well when we led the investment route in Twitter and everybody was sort of saying, oh, who wants to hear about what people had for lunch? I mean, that's so boring. Nobody wants to hear that. And of course, neither the people who started Twitter nor the investors, I think, had you know, a, a, a real view as to how large or influential such a platform could get. Um, and we were actually uh, very interested from the get-go in having Twitter be more of a protocol, more something that other people can build on top of. And uh, if you're familiar with the history of Twitter, in the early days of Twitter, all the Twitter clients, meaning the applications that end users used to access Twitter, they were all by third parties.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And they all operated on the Twitter network. Uh, and for varying decisions that, you know, we, we can maybe get into if it's, if it's of interest, but um, eventually Twitter wound up um, building their own clients and clamping down on all the third party clients. Uh, and so, so that concentrated a lot of the power inside the hands of Twitter. Uh, of course, Facebook um, was always built that way, and, um, and so have been many of the other dominant companies, you know, Google and Amazon. Uh, so uh, I so, would say so, the, biggest, yeah. the biggest, maybe the biggest, in summary, the biggest sort of insight here is that many of us who were super excited about the potential of the internet to be decentralizing have found ourselves in this centralized place today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So are now only very few people control. So is there any way to solve that? Because this network effect when when you close down the network and it's no protocol, but it's a network with somebody in the middle who runs it, is there anything you can do about it? Is is government go regulated as David suggests? Is that the only way we can go?
3: Yeah, so um, we tend to believe that it's the combination of the right kind of regulation mm-hmm. together with additional innovation. And so let me maybe start with the second part. The additional innovation is we now know how to build networks that aren't actually controlled by any one party, meaning we know how to build decentralized networks. And that broadly mm-hmm. falls under the category of blockchains and crypto uh, currencies. So crypto ever,
1: pitties, since, yes.
3: <laughs> er, ever since the uh, uh, sort of Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, um, we now have a new set of mechanisms that allow us to have network effects, but have the network effects not owned by a corporation and not controlled by a corporation, but rather owned collectively by everybody who um, participates in the network. So that is a pretty fundamental technological innovation. Um, For that kind of innovation to really get off the ground, we also need the right regulation. And on the regulatory side, um, we have been looking way too much at the industrial age uh, toolkit Uh, which is uh, antitrust regulation which normally says such things as you need to split up into different divisions that are become separate companies or it says you know we we regulate your behavior like you can only charge this much of a price Um, and our belief is that the most digitally native um, regulation would actually be one that requires these systems to be programmable Uh, so just like I mentioned earlier about the original vision of Twitter, was a programmable network, um, that is the direction we believe regulation should be going into.
1: Uh-huh. But this is, at the moment, almost impossible to to even get the regulators to understand.
3: Um, well, I, I was more skeptical about uh, regulators' um, ability to understand this a few years back, but Um, A couple of good things have happened in the last uh, few years. Uh, One of those is the um, Open Banking Initiative in Europe, uh, which basically requires bank accounts to come with an API. So that's a step in the right direction. Um, There was briefly a bill in the US that didn't make it very far that had the same idea. And in the latest uh, iterations of some of the bills currently being considered in, in the EU, There's actually um, a similar idea again, Um, maybe not quite as pronounced yet, but sort of directionally correct, which is about uh, APIs and programmability, um, which goes beyond sort of some of the data portability ideas that are in the GDPR. Uh, Those were sort of directionally already a hint in the right direction, but data portability when it's a one-time export is really not that interesting because who wants to take their friend list off Facebook once? Yeah. Um, the dynamic life system. It's sort of like making a one-time copy of Wikipedia. It'll be stale five minutes after you've made it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, okay, David, chip in where you want because if you, I mean, let's take the example of Parter. You've written about this as well. I mean, we can all agree terrible things were happening there, but you could still disagree. It was a great idea that in every level of the stack, people have said, okay, we want to host you anymore. We don't want to do your security anymore. And, and at no point ever was there any government decision involved. It was all a commercial business decision to take that away and out in, hosted in Russia. So good, good example. What do you think should happen? I mean, if power had been completely distributed, as you suggest, there would also be no way to stop them.
3: Well, I, I would say a couple of things. Um, the first is, um, People have many times uh, characterized the Internet as being able to route around things, that this is one of its fundamental capabilities. In fact, it was designed that way. The Internet was first developed by DARPA to um, deal with a nuclear war and with major outages in the network and be able to route around this. And so um, one shouldn't be surprised that things built on the Internet over time have found the ability to route around things, and Parler relaunching um, on top of a Russian platform is a perfect example of this. Um, this will certainly not do anything helpful for um, either law enforcement <laughs> or the general moderation of what happens on Parler. Um, so um, it's absolutely correct that if we want um building decentralized platforms, there wouldn't be an off switch. You wouldn't be able to go somewhere and just turn it off. Uh, and that definitely brings its own set of problems with it. Um, I think we are now on the opposite end of the extreme. um, The opposite of the extreme being, um, you know, globally five or six off switches that afflict, basically, um, you know, result in things moving to dark quarters that aren't particularly useful uh, to anybody, and doing so without um, kind of any um, legal framework and essentially deputizing, as it were, sort of in the wild west. You know, you deputize Mm -hmm. a few. Um, outlaws, you turn them into gunmen and you sort of say, here's your sheriff's badge, now go, you know. And I yeah. just don't think that's uh, historically what you know we want in a democracy. It does feel to me that I, I do constantly come back
2: to this idea that we'll look back at the, the 20 years we've just had as some form of Wild West online. So I'm intrigued that you use that phrase. I mean, I, I, it just feels to me it, uh, yeah, almost inevitable that in 2030, well not inevitable, but likely and certainly if we do the work, the regulatory work it feels that we need to do, that it will it will be the case that sort of 30 years from now we'll look back and people who weren't even born now will look back and be like, what you know, how did that, how did that even, how did you guys just leave it like that for so long? <laughs> do you ever have that feeling?
3: Oh, oh, absolutely. Um, as a firm, we've been very outspoken about the rising power of the big platform for many, many years. Um, this isn't some um, So, people waking up to this uh, in 2020 um, is quite surprising. Uh, this has been building for a decade or more. Uh, and it's been very clear where this was going for a decade or more. Uh, it, it's really more a question of what are the appropriate remedies to this? And... Um, The reason, personally, I believe programmability is so important is because that allows a shift of power, um, not from the platforms to government, but from the platforms back to innovation, back to end users, back to communities to create their own solutions. Um, There's a very interesting um, project that just launched uh, by a woman named Tracy Chu called Block Party. And basically, it's a way for people uh, to help each other block others on Twitter. Um, building such a system would be much easier if Twitter um, were forced to have an open API, basically. And this is, um, a, um, um, in my mind, um, the kind of example of where if you can easily shut off innovation on top of these platforms, you're not just shutting off um, things like Parler, but you're also shutting off ways in which the platforms could evolve in a way to give more power back to the end user more power back to communities to enforce their own norms that they find appropriate for their community
2: yeah uh now i want to sort of shift the conversation in a tangential but related direction because you've talked intriguingly there about um distributed ownership and control across networks rather than centralized ownership and control um there are people at, at, and and the you know the the disturbing power almost of the of the big platforms there are people that might find it surprising that an investor would take that view um and you've written a fascinating book called the world after capital you have a fascinating chapter in the next conference book the great redesign that that plays with some of the ideas in that book and if i understand the chapter right and correct me if i'm if i'm wrong of course you will the chapter essentially advances an argument that says um In a world of such abundance, capital is no longer the great constraint. We're moving towards a world where instead attention is the great constraint. So my question really, my overarching question is, is it your belief that digital mechanics, network mechanics, um, incredible abundance by historical terms, are all moving us down a path towards some form of post-capitalism? And that that is something to be welcomed.
3: Well, I, um,
2: I mean, you see, I've I, of, I, 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 of, I'm now. <laughs> it it, it, it <laughs> may not be you at your all. Yeah, exactly.
3: I'm a partner at a venture capital firm, and obviously, um, uh, people um, you know expand this VC as venture capitalist. Um, although I prefer the term venture investor, but um, I I believe capitalism has um, been extraordinarily successful as a system. Uh, It has given us many of the things we take for granted today, uh, you know, and it's been the engine of great progress. Um, It is also a system that can solve all of our problems. And in fact, if you let any system run for a certain time, um, it'll be good at solving the problems that it solves. It'll also accumulate a whole bunch of problems that it can't solve, um, sort of by definition. And sort of what you're left with are the things that it can't solve, right? I mean, this is sort of... um, Um, almost tautological, but still quite important to understand. So the big problems that we're faced with today are almost by definition problems that capitalism can't solve, because the ones that it can solve, it has done a phenomenal job solving. And that's largely the allocation of capital, the creation of physical capital. So if we look at the world today, you know, whether it's a company like Tesla building gigafactories or whether it's uh, the Chinese building entire cities in record time, we're not held back by how much physical capital we have or can create. What we're held back by is what is it that we are individually and collectively paying attention to? Are we paying attention to um, the things that capitalism is already good at? Or are we paying attention to the things that it's actually terrible at, and that as a result of it being terrible at, we are not paying enough attention to? And so I always give two examples of that. At the individual level, you know, people are consuming more content than ever, but they're really not taking the time to ask very fundamental questions, um, questions like, what is my purpose in life? And I think much of the um, midlife crisis or the general sort of deterioration of psychological conditions that we're seeing in the world comes from people being fundamentally uh, insecure and unsure about their purpose. And part of that has to do with, you know, religion, you give easy answers to that, and many people are not religious anymore. So there's that intersection. And then collectively, we have these huge both challenges and opportunities, the biggest challenge being the climate crisis. And if you think about how many people are working on solving the climate crisis, it's thankfully steadily increasing, but it's still tiny compared to the scale of the problem. And so uh, in the book, I write about how markets can't solve the allocation attention problem because these things don't have prices. And there's reasons why they don't have prices. They can't have prices. And so places capitalism really breaks down is in these areas where you can't have prices.
1: So what, is, what? how should they be solved? then? I mean, who is going to make sure that the right kind of attention is allocated to solving these humongous problems?
3: Yeah, I think the big starting point is that we need to free up a lot of attention, attention that's currently trapped elsewhere. And when what are the so big places where attention is trapped. Well, one is what I call in the book the job loop, which is uh, so many people have jobs that are not fulfilling to them uh, as a starting point. Um, but they have to have them because it's how they can you know, live. It's how they can you know, rent a place and pay for food and, and those kind of things. Um, uh, the late um, David Graeber uh, um, had this term bullshit jobs um, which I think, you know, he wrote a book about it. I think it's, 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 it's true. There's a lot of jobs that sort of exist, but they're kind of bullshit at the end of the day. And we already know that we can and should be automating these things. You know, if you think of a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of back office, um, type work, um, and, um, uh, so that, that's one place where we are trapping a lot of attention. And then the other place we're trapping a lot of attention is, you know, is these devices where, you know, constantly, you know, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, whatever is sort of telling you, come look here, there's this exciting new thing that you should be spending time on. And, um, you know, the market cap of these companies is almost directly correlated to how much of our attention they um, can can grab. Uh, So we shouldn't be surprised that, the current state we're finding ourselves in is that instead of us programming these supercomputers, these are supercomputers, instead of us programming them, they're programming us. And that's a very wrong state of the world. So that's where the second big lump of attention is trapped. And
1: so- but, but who, who is going to change that? I mean, I, I don't, I think putting the whole world in lockdown for a year only reinforces the idea that you know Netflix, TikTok and whatever is you know your life, seriously. Yeah. My kids, it's their life. <laughs> There's nothing else anymore. Yeah, it, so in the
3: book, I talk about sort of three um, large, um, I call them freedoms, um, that I believe we need to sort of um, foster if we want to unlock this attention. And they're economic freedom, informational freedom, and psychological freedom. Let me maybe start with the last one, because psychological freedom is something each and every one of, of us can do on our own really. And that's the idea that you can develop some kind of mindfulness practice, you know, for some people that may be yoga, for other people that may be running, for other people, maybe meditation, whatever it is, something though, so that you can find the will to turn your phone to do not disturb, you know, um, and to ignore what other people say about you on the internet, um, even if they're saying mean things, or to ignore, you know, um, the sort of, Salacious headlines that are designed simply to grab your attention. Uh, and that is a skill, um, it's a cap- capability that we can all invest in and develop. Uh, I would put an interesting aside you can go through all of school, um, you know, whatever, however many years of school, and you may be required to learn math, you may be required to have physical education, all those things. You are not required to develop a mindfulness practice, which is when you think about how the brain works, that, that's kind of crazy. The second freedom I talk about is this informational freedom, which is what we had covered early in the conversation. It's we need to have the ability to program these systems so that they don't program us. And then the economic freedom part is really about we have made so much technological progress in the world and we can make so much more that the idea that people absolutely must work in order to be able to live is a crazy idea. We can afford to pay everybody a basic income now, that's not going to be enough to live in Berlin or in Manhattan, um, you know, but it'll be enough so that you can choose at which point you decide that you want to make more money or you can choose never to make more money and live in a you know, quiet place somewhere in the country and do things that, you know, are non-monetary in nature. And there are a million non-monetary things that we need to be working on, you know, such as restoring nature, taking care of our friends, taking care of family. Um, there's a myriad of things that are non-monetary and should be non-monetary and so we need to create the ability for people to pay attention to those
1: i, I think we almost come to to questions from our audience but you know if you would have to give the biden harris administration one piece of advice that they could do right away would it be universal basic income i mean w- bang for president what's your first decision
3: Um, Yeah, I I very much believe that uh, we need to put the rails in place to implement a universal basic income. So that starts with how do you get money to people? Um, How much money do you start with? What are some of the subsidies today that we shouldn't have? You know, we have lots of subsidies. We still have subsidies in parts for things like coal. We have subsidies for certain parts of industrial scale agriculture. These are subsidies that are supporting things that we know are very bad. Um, and then most importantly, um, you know, we in the U.S., but also this and the, the ECB and also China have been printing tons of money, uh, especially in these crises. And all of this money goes primarily to people who are already wealthy or companies that don't actually need it. Um, and something known as the Cantillon effect, which Cantillon, who wrote about this in the, basically, I think, the 1700s, already figured out that if you print money, uh, it usually makes the rich richer uh and so uh if you're going to print a lot of money i think the right way to print it is to give it to everybody equally so we need to put the rails for that in place and yes if if i were in washington i would work hard to make that happen ah
1: nice nice david some audience questions from you
3: yes
2: um we have a we have a few audience questions here bringing it back to of course a, a practical level so one of the questions is um if I, you know, companies and organisations who are, who are waging this war for the customer's attention, what kind of developments and what kinds of trends do you think um, they, should be, they should be keeping an eye on and they should be leveraging in order to get people's attention? And, and given the nature of the conversation we've had so far, of course, you know, how can you get attention in a responsible, healthy way? I mean, we all need, organisations need attention. Um, what's, a, what's a good way to
3: do it? Big question. Well, I I believe that the the first thing is to understand that um, the algorithms that uh, companies are running now um, are essentially one gigantic dark pattern, right? So if you think about the YouTube algorithm, um, it optimizes for engagement, but engagement is most easily achieved through these cheap emotional hooks, the things that are controversial. It's harder to get engagement if you're trying to get somebody to uh, learn math, for example, or to really understand the causes of the climate crisis in depth. Uh, And so I think the starting point is to understand where the problem with the algorithms lies. But more deeply, I do believe that companies need to fundamentally revisit their business model. So in the USV portfolio, we have switched pretty significantly to companies that are uh, on a consumer subscription model and where there's no third-party customer. So there isn't this idea that, hey, it's me, the company, you, the the end user, and there's this third party over here, the advertiser. Instead, it's just a subscription where you're paying for the value that you're you're receiving. Uh, And that feels like a, a, a very important step in the right direction towards a healthier form of engagement.
2: Yeah, subscription models, and they are, you know, increasingly having a moment, a long moment, for, for those reasons. Um, a quick, again, a uh, big question here. What's the time frame you have in mind for the world after capital? One, or is it already here?
3: Well, I I, I would say that um, the, uh, expiration age on, uh, the expiration date on the industrial age, in my mind, is uh, 10 to 20 years ago. So 10 to 20 years ago, we started to see really, really big changes, huge changes in income and wealth distribution, huge changes in access to knowledge and so forth, uh, huge changes in our digital capabilities. Um, The cost of compute has plummeted, the abilities of computation, you know, on things like facial recognition, artificial intelligence have grown tremendously. So I believe the expiration date was 10 to 20 years ago. And I would say that um, we're in this transition period, it's the transition periods that are always the most dangerous. Um, Think of the transition from the agrarian age into the industrial age. That transition was marked by several revolutions. uh, And ultimately it didn't really, it wasn't really completed unfortunately until the end of World War II. Uh, And so since that is all a relatively recent transition, I think we really need to examine what happened there and why it went so wrong so that we can become more proactive. It's a failure of to be proactive in painting a new vision future and in making big changes instead of incremental changes um, that has led us to Trump and Brexit. It is, a, it is 10, 20 years of incremental changes of saying, you know what, if we lower the interest rate a little bit and if we have some retraining programs, all will be good. And then people go wait, you've been saying this for 10 years or 20 years. And where I sit, it's just getting worse. And where you sit, it's getting better and better. So something is really wrong, much more fundamentally wrong. And so if you don't actually openly address that, and if you're not willing to make um, big changes as opposed to incremental changes, you open the door for somebody to come along and say, well, I have the answer. The answer should go back to the past, you know? And, and so I believe it's our narrative vacuum that we've created that has allowed people like Trump to succeed.
2: Yeah, and I, I, I would echo that. Um, and it always strikes me as crazy that kind of neoliberalism, uh, for want of a better phrase, is, uh, is sold as this kind of technocratic sort of sober doctrine of economic management. But when you look at what's happened over the last you know 10 years, 10, 15 years, where, as you say, inflation's just been held down, interest, sorry, interest rates have been held down so low We've printed so much money. Sometimes I wonder if the, if the post-capitalist world arises because we just print so much money that people finally just throw their hands up and say, well, what is money then? Let's just forget money. You're just inventing money now. Um, it, it's, and, and, and that taps into, I mean, it's a very crude economic point, or it's put in crude terms because I'm not an economist, but it, it, it taps into that point you make about the world after capital. Capital is no longer the constraint. And, and, and what happens when you have a, a tipping point number of people who sort of realise that? And say, hey, we just printed $2 trillion, we invented $2 trillion to to get us out of this hole. And we're being told that still, we all have to play by the same rules. When I thought one of the big rules was you must pay your debts, there's only so much money, we must be responsible. Yeah, I just wonder about that.
3: Uh, Well, and and David, I think that hits the nail on the head. Um, I think just because we have the Biden administration now, none of the fundamental problems have actually gone away. Right. I mean, the fundamental problems are They're exactly the way they were during the Obama administration, exactly the way they were there before. Uh, And I think these problems, by the way, are not U.S. problems. They exist in much the same form in Europe and in much the same form in Asia. Um, So two things are simultaneously true, and this is really confounds a lot of people. Over the last 20 plus years, even more, we have lifted more people than ever out of abject poverty globally. This is tremendous progress that people who live in totally abstract poverty has declined tremendously. At the same time, we have stretched the income and wealth distributions on a per country level to extents not seen since the early 1900s. And we know that didn't end very well.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, fascinating. Uh, Okay, one final, and this is a great question to end on actually. Um, Clubhouse and Monique and I, (laughs) funnily enough, will be continuing this conversation on Clubhouse right after the show. But our audience member wants to know your thoughts on Clubhouse. In particular, as an investor in Twitter,
3: would you now invest in Clubhouse? Well, I I believe these new capabilities um, are, Phenomenal capabilities in terms of how they expand what we can do as humans. So the idea, for instance, that we have this conversation right now with none of us being in the same place is wonderful. Um, Having that as audio conversations is a wonderful new capability. And um, I would say there are lots of signs that suggest, we're not investors in it, but there are lots of signs that suggest that Clubhouse will be a big platform on which tons of people interact. Um, Now, the question is, Will that only be used for good things? Well, the answer is almost certainly not. You know, all human technology, going back to the earliest human technology, which was fire. You can use fire to cook a meal. Um, you can use it to make bricks, and you can also use it to burn down somebody else's house, right? So um, whenever we invent new technology, it has applications that are good and bad, and often within the same thing. Take YouTube. YouTube has some of the most horrific misguided, ill-informed, paranoid um, (laughs) videos on it that can take you down a complete, you know, um, psychological hole. And it has some of the most amazingly instructive videos. Um, You know, I'm thinking of channels like Numberphile, for example, um, or Veritasium that explain science in the most accessible way I've ever seen and the most engaging way. And so I think we just have to um, together understand that these technologies dramatically expand our capabilities, and that we need to come up with new ways of regulating ourselves, that's the sort of mindfulness part, and of regulating this technology. And that's primarily by making it programmable. Because, for instance, Facebook gets 100 billion posts a day. There is no way of dealing with this unless we give people the tools, not just Facebook the tools. We need to give people the tools to work on this kind of platform at that scale.
2: Okay, thank you so much. Now we're running not quite out of time yet, but low on time. And there is one very important thing we need to do before we let you go, Albert. So let us start the regular Next World section. Roll those credits. Now I get to give my favourite speech because imagine this Albert, it is the near future and amid an increasingly acute crisis on planet Earth, a crack team of technologists finalises a daring plan, a new chapter for humanity. They are going to travel along with 1000 specially selected people far beyond the solar system to the planet next one and there they are going to establish a permanent base, a new society a new home for human beings. Albert Wenger, because of your achievements in the field of technology and entrepreneurship and literature and broadcasting now as well, you have been chosen to be among those 1000 people. Before you undertake this journey, there are five big questions you must answer. Five questions. So let's see question number one. Name one luxury physical object you want to
3: take to your new home. Uh, I I would take a bottle of wine from Fattoria Petrollo in Italy.
2: Okay, that's an answer I think we can all get on board with. Done. Number two, let's roll number two. Which book? everyone read before they board the spaceship to next one uh
3: probably my favorite book which is uh, the beginning of infinity by david deutsch Uh
2: aha now that is a dense book so they're going to need to start early or they're going to miss the spaceship okay indeed (laughs) question number three let's roll number three Create one law that bans something from next one forever.
3: One law that bans something. Um, can I ban the death penalty? Uh, I would ban the death penalty. I would ban, if I could, I would ban all physical violence against humans.
2: I think that can be done. Let's roll question number four. Name one tradition from planet Earth that should be replicated on next one?
3: I would say saying please and thank you. Saying please and thank you, yeah. Yeah, saying please and thank you. It's a friendly friendly tradition. It is indeed, yes, I love
2: that. Common courtesy, that should be replicated. Okay, final question. Name one exceptional person who should qualify to be among the first 1,000 to travel.
3: Uh, do I get to send my wife? Um, I, I, I would nominate her. Um, so Susan Danzig in that case. I, I would send a roboticist, maybe somebody like uh, Dr. Ayana Howard. She's at Georgia Tech. Um, because I would feel like robots would be important to have. Because then you can move to that post,
2: post-work world where the robots do all the gardening and, and all that stuff
3: for you. Exactly. And they're, they're going to have to be digging up a lot of rocks. Uh, and build habitats and shelters and so forth. So I like it.
2: I like it. Okay. Well, given those answers, you are ready to board the spacecraft. Enjoy your journey. Let us know how it goes on next one. I hope you do achieve that post-work world. Send us a postcard. But we are, as I said, running out of time. I'm going to hand over to Ina to wrap up the show.
3: Well, pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you so much. Oh, there uh, there were so many thoughts in there that I could relate to. Thank you so much. Um, And also, uh, it was an honor to have you as an author in our book, The Great Redesign. So thanks a lot for that. Thank you. I hope you and the audience enjoyed the show today. We will hop over to Clubhouse, which is like the hype of the hour in Germany right now. Everyone seems to be there. So we will be there, too, today. Um, and continue our conversation together with Monique and David. Um, And I hope to see you there or hear you there. Um, You can find the link in the chat here. Thank you for watching today. And also a big thank you to the team behind the scenes, Stefan, Merle and Juliane. And of course to our partners, Accenture Interactive and Factor 3, our media partner, T3N and our live stream and webinar partner 23. Next time we will welcome Letizia Vitot to our next stage. Letizia is a French writer and an HR expert now based in Munich who will talk with us about the future of work and consumption. With her, we will talk about the change in employee experiences across all branches, how to manage scattered teams, how to recruit in remote setups What are the skills relevant for times of change? Letizia has written several books and also contributed to our next book, The Great Reset. So thank you and hopefully hear you at Clubhouse now and have a great day.